Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 175, Ditto. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can visit Knitting Out Loud at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus. Knit Circus is the online magazine that features three rings of knitting and sewing fun. You can find the latest edition of Knit Circus at www.knitcircus.com. And Pediatric Pain Solutions, because what you don't know about pain management will hurt your child. All of these can be found via links on the craftlit.com show notes. Well, hello. I am not going to talk for very long today. I know. Shocking, right? Because uh, I'm getting ready to go to Chicago. I'm going to actually have this episode go live while I am there. But, um, but I didn't want to leave you in the lurch this week because because the Connecticut Yankee story is really good. So today I'm actually going to play you four episodes. Initially, I thought I was only going to play you three, but it turns out that I think I can squeeze in four. And last week's episode was very long anyway, so I, I figure, you know, if you made it through last week, you'll make it through this week. I have all sorts of extra audio and goodies and all sorts of fun stuff, but uh, but that's going to wait for when I come back from Chicago. And to expedite this process, <laughs> I, uh, I named the episode Ditto because I am not posting new show notes. Um, aside from trying to add a picture, uh, I don't need to change 174. So 174 show notes are now 174, 175 show notes. And, uh, and we'll let it go at that. Last week, we had, um, we had our, our hero, our main character, and he uh, managed to outwit everybody and escape death at the last minute with the use of scientific knowledge, his knowledge of the eclipse. Well, you're going to get uh, more of that today. You're also going to get some, um, well, there are a bunch of jokes, not surprisingly, there are a bunch of jokes that go through. One of the things to listen for is uh, how he names his departments. One of the things you're going to see him start doing is setting up uh, modern conveniences in this older world. And I talked before about the fact that the Dark Ages really weren't all that dark. You know, they invented, um, they invented a form of the plow, uh, uh, horse collars or oxen collars um, that, you know, made it possible for an animal to pull more weight because you weren't putting the pressure on, say, their jaw, things like that. Um, so there, there were all sorts of inventions and things like that going on, but there's no question that as far as modern conveniences go, the early Middle Ages um, were not exactly the hippest place to be. Um, one, of, one of the things that I find really fascinating about this main character, our narrator, is that he is, he is cynical, but he doesn't seem to know it. There is no, it's almost like there's no guile in the way that he presents himself to us. He's, I, I suppose it's, Twain can kind of get away with it because uh, since this is supposed to be this, this guy's diary or, or journal, you know, his, his writing down of all of the things that happened to him during this extraordinary journey, um, he's, not, he's not trying to mask his, uh, his, his motivations. For, for doing what he's doing. And so he's, he's kind of like this wide open, sweet faced uh, cynic. It's just, it's a very, very interesting character. And, and you're going to see a lot of that today. And of course, uh, one of the things that he criticizes all the time is uh, superstition, the superstition of the people who he finds himself among. And sure, that's fine and all, but you're going to see him using that superstition you already have, but you're going to see him using it more as we go along. Um, you're also going to see him go after Merlin. He's going to, he's going to, um, you're really going to see him using technology 
for the first time, technology from the 19th century that he then kind of transposes into um, the the 500s or the the sixth century, and um, and it's it's interesting. It's interesting to watch what he does, and it's interesting to watch him go after Merlin. Because, you know, for one thing, we get to see his mechanical prowess by watching him do this, but but we also watch his theater, his his sense of theatricality, which I find just hysterical. Oh, and one of the things, okay, I had to go do some research for you. There are a couple things he mentions. One is the bar sinister. Now, he's going to make a joke about the bar sinister. And what that is, is in heraldry, it's, you know how when you see the, the, the shield, somebody's family... Uh, family herald, like you know, the the lion was Richard the Lionhearted. So he has a lion on his on his uh, shield. Well, in in heraldry, or at least at least I think British heraldry. I don't know if this bleeds into other things. I think uh, I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. It looks like uh, it's the same in England and France. It's very similar. And interestingly, it is Sir Walter Scott who uses the word bar sinister. In real heraldry, it's the baton sinister. But either way, it is a, a line, a rather thick line, that moves from the lower left corner of the shield, or the coat of arms, up to the upper right corner. So it's like, um, you know, the, uh, the red circle with a line through it? It's that same idea. Um, and... Uh, that cracks me up that Sir Walter Scott is the one who calls it bar, sin bar sinister. Um, what it means is uh, that one is illegitimate. There's another word that starts with B. Um, the, uh, the joke, you will understand, is all about uh, whether one is legitimate or not. And of course, when, when we use the term bar sinister, it's like sinestre. It's... Um, uh, left. All it's all it's telling you is the indication of which way the thing is tilting. Um, the word sinister, of course, has gotten um, misused and, and bastardized on its own. Actually, um, to to mean something um, less clear cut, <laughs> carrying more and deeper nasty implications than um, than the original intent of the word. But that's why I, you know I have a lot of friends and, and family members who are left handed. And, um, you know, all the uh, stereotypes and, and old wives' tales and, and um, horrible things that have been done to left-handed people over the years, um, it, all, it all kind of gets wrapped up in, in that terminology. And fascinating history of the word left, just in general. Anyway, so Bar Sinister, uh, there's a joke coming up about Bar Sinister. There's also, he goes off on this long tangent about chromos and what that is talking about is chromolithography. And as far as I can tell, it, it's a, a lithographic process. It's, it seems to me like it's similar to doing um, silk screening that you're, or, or any kind of like print block making, but it uses a, a higher level of uh, technological expertise and um, and I'm going to see if I can put a link. They have an amazing chromo, uh, reproduction of a chromo card from 1883. And it is so iconic of that period. And, um, and the colors are so interesting. Now I kind of understand why there's a certain look to some pieces of art um, as far as, as color goes. I have a feeling it has more to do with the process than I had initially thought. It, and at first, when I was listening to the way Twain was going on about these chromos, at first I started to think, oh my gosh, it must be like the velvet paintings of his day. But it also looks like they actually are a bit pricey, even back then. So I'm revising my initial thinking. But, um, but I hope somebody actually knows more about chromos than I do and will uh, put something in the show notes because they're interesting. More and more people, by the way, are putting information in the show notes, so you should take a look uh, at some point if you can. You're going to hear our man, the boss, talk about um, turning, turning down a title, turning down a, a, no, a title of nobility. And that's true and all, but it reminded me of 
um, Caesar, especially Shakespeare's Caesar, thrice hath Caesar refused the crown, or thrice hath the crown been offered, and thrice, thrice hath Caesar refused. And, um, and we all know what Caesar went on to do and what he was trying to do. And, and so hearing, hearing them refer to, um, to our guy or hearing him refer, refer to himself rather as someone who, who refused a title of nobility, even though it would have raised himself in, in esteem in everybody's eyes. Um, there is, there is that sense in me that there's more, more to it perhaps than, uh, than what the boss is letting on to. Today you're also going to hear his first full-on critique, Twain's full-on critique of the, the um, Catholic Church. And of course, again, this is, this is the Catholic Church of the early medieval era. And, um, and actually, if, if you have read the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, Twain's critique of the Catholic Church today sounds a bit to me like uh, Malcolm X's critique of Christianity in general, which uh, I thought was kind of interesting since Twain and Malcolm X were separated by almost 100 years on this one. Um, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me that uh, the same kind of thinking, especially in those post-Civil War years, could have been prevalent enough for, for Twain to have been talking about it. I, I have a hard time believing that, that Twain's criticism were unique to him. His, his criticisms are, are stated in a way that makes me think that he was not the only person saying this. He seems fairly confident that there will be uh, an audience out there agreeing with, with what he's saying. So I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting. You will also hear today uh, one of my favorite examples of bad timing <laughs> that occurs to the poor boss. And, um, and it's, it, you know how everybody, I hope, or is it just me, has had one of those moments where everything is going on and it's really loud and you're trying to talk to a friend and so you're having to raise your voice to talk and then all of a sudden everything gets really quiet and you yell out, but in the bathroom, and you know, everybody hears. There's one of those moments, but it's, it's a lot more damaging uh, a statement than just something about the bathroom. You'll also probably notice that for, for our man, our Yankee, um, he has a religion. I mean, he's he's a Presbyterian, which is not a surprise. So was Mark Twain, but uh, but more than that, he's you know his his the the God that he prays to is progress in a lot of ways, and you're going to hear a lot of that in today's chapters, and um, and I think that's that's the important stuff for you to know. Yeah things are good. So, I'm going to hand you over to the worthy voice of our ever so wonderful narrator. Gosh, I just love this guy. And, uh, and let you listen. I'm going to let you listen to all four back to back because really there's no reason for me to pop in. So, have a great time. Enjoy. And I will say goodbye to you at the end. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 7, Merlin's Tower. Inasmuch as I was now the second personage in the kingdom, as far as political power and authority were concerned, much was made of me. My raiment was of silks and velvets and cloth of gold, and by consequence was very showy, also uncomfortable. But habit would soon reconcile me to my clothes, I was aware of that. I was given the choicest suite of apartments in the castle after the king's. They were aglow with loud-colored silken hangings, but the stone floors had nothing but rushes on them for a carpet, and they were misfit rushes at that, being not all of one breed. As for conveniences, properly speaking, there weren't any. I mean, little conveniences. It is the, the little conveniences that make the real comfort of life. The big oaken chairs, graced with rude carvings, were well enough, but that was the stopping place. There was no soap, no matches, no looking-glass except a metal one, about as powerful as a pail of water, and not a chromo. I had been used to chromos for years, and I saw now that without my suspecting it, a passion for art had got worked into the fabric of my being and was become a part of me. 
It made me homesick to look around over this proud and gaudy but heartless barrenness, and remember that in our house in East Hartford, all unpretending as it was, you couldn't go into a room, but you would find an insurance chromo, or at least a three-color God bless our home over the door, and in the parlor we had nine. But here, even in my grand room of state, there wasn't anything in the nature of a picture except a thing the size of a bedquilt, which was either woven or knitted. It had darned places in it. And nothing in it was the right color or the right shape. And as for proportions, even Raphael himself couldn't have botched them more formidably after all his practice on those nightmares they call his celebrated Hampton Court cartoons. Raphael was a bird. We had several of his chromos. One was his miraculous draft of fishes, where he puts in a miracle of his own, puts three men into a canoe which wouldn't have held a dog without upsetting. I always admired to study R's art. It was so fresh and unconventional. There wasn't even a bell or a speaking tube in the castle. I had a great many servants, and those that were on duty lolled in the anteroom, and when I wanted one of them I had to go and call for him. There was no gas, there were no candles, a bronze dish half full of boarding-house butter with a blazing rag floating in it was the thing that produced what was regarded as light. A lot of these hung along the walls and modified the dark, just toned it down enough to make it dismal. If you went out at night, your servants carried torches. There were no books, pens, paper, or ink, and no glass in the openings they believed to be windows. It is a little thing, glass is, until it is absent, then it becomes a big thing. But perhaps the worst of all was that there wasn't any sugar, coffee, tea, or tobacco. I saw that I was just another Robinson Crusoe cast away on an uninhabited island with no society but some more or less tame animals, and if I wanted to make life bearable I must do as he did, invent, contrive, create, reorganize things, set brain and hand to work, and keep them busy. Well, that was in my line. One thing troubled me along at first, the immense interest which people took in me, Apparently the whole nation wanted to look at me. It soon transpired that the eclipse had scared the British world almost to death, that while it lasted the whole country from one end to the other was in a pitiable state of panic, and the churches, hermitages, and monkeries overflowed with praying and weeping poor creatures who thought the end of the world was come. Then had followed the news that the producer of this awful event was a stranger, a mighty magician at Arthur's court, that he could have blown out the sun like a candle, and was just going to do it when his mercy was purchased, and he then dissolved his enchantments, and was now recognized and honored as the man who had by his unaided might saved the globe from destruction and its peoples from extinction." Now, if you consider that everybody believed that, and not only believed it, but never even dreamed of doubting it, you will easily understand that there was not a person in all Britain that would not have walked fifty miles to get a sight of me. Of course, I was all the talk. All other subjects were dropped. Even the king became suddenly a person of minor interest and notoriety. Within twenty-four hours the delegations began to arrive, and from that time onward for a fortnight they kept coming. The village was crowded, and all the countryside. I had to go out a dozen times a day and show myself to these reverent and awe-stricken multitudes. It came to be a great burden as to time and trouble— but of course it was at the same time compensatingly agreeable to be so celebrated and such a center of homage. It turned Br'er Merlin green with envy and spite, which was a great satisfaction to me. But there was one thing I couldn't understand. Nobody had asked for an autograph. I spoke to Clarence about it. By George, I had to explain to him what it was. Then he said nobody in the country could read or write but a few dozen priests— Land! Think of that! There was another thing that troubled me a little. Those multitudes presently began to agitate for another miracle. 
That was natural, to be able to carry back to their far homes the boast that they had seen the man who could command the sun riding in the heavens and be obeyed would make them great in the eyes of their neighbors and envied by them all, but to be able to also say they had seen him work a miracle themselves, why, people would come a distance to see them. The pressure got to be pretty strong. There was going to be an eclipse of the moon, and I knew the date and hour, but it was too far away. Two years. I would have given a good deal for license to hurry it up and use it now when there was a big market for it. It seemed a great pity to have it wasted so, and come lagging along at a time when a body wouldn't have any use for it like it is not. If it had been booked for only a month away, I could have sold it short, but as matters stood, I couldn't seem to cipher out any way to make it do me any good, so I gave up trying. Next, Clarence found that old Merlin was making himself busy on the sly among those people. He was spreading a report that I was a humbug, and that the reason I didn't accommodate the people with a miracle was because I couldn't. I saw that I must do something. I presently thought out a plan. By my authority as executive, I threw Merlin into prison, the same cell I had occupied myself. Then I gave public notice by herald and trumpet that I should be busy with affairs of state for a fortnight, but about the end of that time I would take a moment's leisure and blow up Merlin's stone tower by fires from heaven. In the meantime, whoso listened to evil reports about me, let him beware. Furthermore, I would perform but this one miracle at this time, and no more. If it failed to satisfy, and any murmured, I would turn the murmurers into horses and make them useful. Quiet ensued. I took Clarence into my confidence to a certain degree, and we went to work privately. I told him that this was a sort of miracle that required a trifle of preparation, and that it would be sudden death to ever talk about these preparations to anybody. That made his mouth safe enough. Clandestinely we made a few bushels of first-rate blasting powder, and I superintended my armorers while they constructed a lightning rod and some wires. This old stone tower was very massive, and rather ruinous, too, for it was Roman, and four hundred years old. Yes, and handsome, after a rude fashion, and clothed with ivy from base to summit as with a shirt of scale mail. It stood on a lonely eminence in a good view from the castle, and about half a mile away. Working by night, we stowed the powder in the tower, dug stones out on the inside, and buried the powder in the walls themselves, which were fifteen feet thick at the base. We put in a peck at a time in a dozen places. We could have blown up the Tower of London with these charges. When the thirteenth night was come, we put up our lightning rod, bedded it in one of the batches of powder, and ran wires from it to the other batches. Everybody had shunned that locality from the day of my proclamation, but on the morning of the fourteenth I thought best to warn the people, through the heralds, to keep clear away, a quarter of a mile away. Then added, by command, that at some time during the twenty-four hours I would consummate the miracle, and would first give a brief notice, by flags on the castle towers, if in the daytime, by torch-baskets in the same places, if at night. Thunder-showers had been tolerably frequent of late, and I was not much afraid of a failure. Still, I shouldn't have cared for a delay of a day or two. I should have explained that I was busy with affairs of state yet, and the people must wait. Of course, we had a blazing sunny day, almost the first one without a cloud for three weeks. Things always happened so. I kept secluded and watched the weather. Clarence dropped in from time to time and said the public excitement was growing and growing all the time, and the whole country filling up with human masses as far as one could see from the battlements. At last the wind sprang up and a cloud appeared, in the right quarter, too, and just at nightfall. For a little while I watched that distant cloud spread and blacken. Then I judged it was time for me to appear. I ordered the torch-baskets to be lit, and Merlin liberated— and sent to me. A quarter of an hour later I ascended the parapet, and there found the king and the court assembled and gazing off in the darkness toward Merlin's tower. Already the darkness was so heavy that one could not see far. 
these people and the old turrets being partly in deep shadow and partly in the red glow from the great torch-baskets overhead made a good deal of a picture. Merlin arrived in a gloomy mood. I said, "'You wanted to burn me alive when I had not done you any harm, and latterly you have been trying to injure my professional reputation. Therefore I am going to call down fire and blow up your tower.' but it is only fair to give you a chance. Now, if you think you can break my enchantments and ward off the fires, step to the bat. It's your innings. I can, fair sir, and I will. Doubt it not. He drew an imaginary circle on the stones of the roof and burnt a pinch of powder in it, which sent up a small cloud of aromatic smoke, whereat everybody fell back and began to cross themselves and get uncomfortable. Then he began to mutter and make passes in the air with his hands. He worked himself up slowly and gradually into a sort of frenzy, and got to thrashing around with his arms, like the sails of a windmill. By this time the storm had about reached us. The gusts of wind were flaring the torches and making the shadows swash about. The first heavy drops of rain were falling. The world abroad was black as pitch. The lightning began to wink fitfully. Of course, my rod would be loading itself now. In fact, things were imminent. So I said, You have had time enough. I have given you every advantage and not interfered. It is plain your magic is weak. It is only fair that I begin now. I made about three passes in the air, and then there was an awful crash, and that old tower leapt into the sky in chunks along with a vast volcanic fountain of fire that turned night to noonday and showed a thousand acres of human beings groveling on the ground in a general collapse of consternation. Well, it rained mortar and masonry the rest of the week. This was the report, but probably the facts would have modified it. It was an effective miracle. The great bothersome temporary population vanished. There were a good many thousand tracks in the mud the next morning, but they were all outward bound. If I had advertised another miracle, I couldn't have raised an audience with a sheriff. Merlin's stock was flat. The king wanted to stop his wages. He even wanted to banish him, but I interfered. I said he would be useful to work the weather and attend to small matters like that, and I would give him a lift now and then when his poor little parlor magic soured on him. There wasn't a rag of his tower left, but I had the government rebuild it for him and advised him to take borders, but he was too high-toned for that. And as for being grateful, he never even said thank you. He was a rather hard lot, take him how you might, but then you couldn't fairly expect a man to be sweet that had been set back so. End of chapter 7 This is chapter 8, The Boss to be vested with enormous authority is a fine thing, but to have the onlooking world consent to it is a finer. The tower episode solidified my power and made it impregnable. If any were perchance disposed to be jealous and critical before that, they experienced a change of heart now. There was not any one in the kingdom who would have considered it good judgment to meddle with my matters. I was fast getting adjusted to my situation and circumstances. For a time I used to wake up mornings and smile at my dream and listen for the colt's factory whistle, but that sort of thing played itself out gradually, and at last I was fully able to realize that I was actually living in the sixth century and in Arthur's court, not a lunatic asylum. After that, I was just as much at home in that century as I could have been in any other, and as for preference, I wouldn't have traded it for the twentieth. Look at the opportunities here for a man of knowledge, brains, pluck, and enterprise to sail in and grow up in the country, the grandest field that ever was, and all my own, not a competitor, not a man who wasn't a baby to me in acquirements and capacities, whereas what would I amount to in the twentieth century? I should be a foreman of a factory, that is about all. 
and could drag a seine down street any day and catch a hundred better men than myself. What a jump I had made! I couldn't keep from thinking about it, and contemplating it, just as one does who has struck oil. There was nothing back of me that could approach it, unless it might be Joseph's case, and Joseph's only approached it and it didn't equal it quite. For it stands to reason that as Joseph's splendid financial ingenuities advantaged nobody but the king, the general public must have regarded him with a good deal of disfavor, whereas I had done my entire public a kindness in sparing the sun, and was popular by reason of it. I was no shadow of a king. I was the substance. The king himself was the shadow. My power was colossal, and it was not a mere name, as such things have generally been. It was the genuine article. I stood here at the very spring and source of the second great period of the world's history, and could see the trickling stream of that history gather and deepen and broaden and roll its mighty tides down the far centuries, and I could note the upspringing of adventures like myself in the shelter of its long array of thrones. De Montforts, Gavinstons, Mortimers, Villierses, the war-making, campaign-directing wantons of France, and Charles II's scepter-wielding drabs, but nowhere in the procession was my full-sized fellow visible. I was a unique, and glad to know that that fact could not be dislodged or challenged for thirteen centuries and a half, for sure. Yes, in power, I was equal to the king." At the same time, there was another power that was a trifle stronger than both of us put together. That was the church. I do not wish to disguise that fact. I couldn't if I wanted to. But never mind about that now. It will show up in its proper place later on. It didn't cause me any trouble in the beginning, at least any of consequence. Well, it was a curious country and full of interest. And the people— they were the quaintest and simplest and trustingest race. Why, they were nothing but rabbits. It was pitiful for a person born in a wholesome, free atmosphere to listen to their humble and hearty outpourings of loyalty toward their king and church and nobility, as if they had any more occasion to love and honor king and church and noble than a slave has to love and honor the lash, or a dog has to love and honor the stranger that kicks him. Why, dear me, any kind of royalty, howsoever modified, any kind of aristocracy, howsoever pruned, is rightly an insult. But if you are born and brought up under that sort of arrangement, you probably never find it out for yourself, and don't believe it when somebody else tells you. It is enough to make a body ashamed of his race to think of the sort of froth that has always occupied its thrones without shadow of right or reason— and the seventh-rate people that have always figured as its aristocracies, a company of monarchs and nobles who, as a rule, would have achieved only poverty and obscurity if left, like their betters, to their own exertions. The most of King Arthur's British nation were slaves, pure and simple, and bore that name, and wore the iron collar on their necks, and the rest were slaves in fact, but without the same. They imagined themselves men and free men, and called themselves so. The truth was, the nation as a body was in the world for one object and one only, to grovel before king and church and noble, to slave for them, sweat blood for them, starve that they might be fed, work that they might play, drink misery to the dregs that they might be happy." go naked that they might wear silks and jewels, pay taxes that they might be spared from paying them, and be familiar all their lives with the degrading language and postures of adulation that they might walk in pride and think themselves the gods of this world. And for all this the thanks they got were cuffs and contempt, and so poor-spirited were they that they took even this sort of attention as an honor." Inherited ideas are a curious thing, and interesting to observe and examine. I had mine, the king and his people had theirs. In both cases they flowed in ruts worn deep by time and habit, 
and a man who should have proposed to divert them by reason and argument would have had a long contract on his hands. For instance, those people had inherited the idea that all men without title and a long pedigree, whether they had great natural gifts and acquirements or hadn't, were creatures of no more consideration than so many animals, bugs, insects, whereas I had inherited the idea that human daws, who can consent to masquerade in the peacock shams of inherited dignities and unearned titles, are of no good but to be laughed at. The way I was looked upon was odd, but it was natural. You know how the keeper and the public regard the elephant in the menagerie, well, that is the idea. They are full of admiration of his vast bulk and his prodigious strength. They speak with pride of the fact that he can do a hundred marvels which are far and away beyond their own powers. And they speak with the same pride of the fact that in his wrath he is able to drive a thousand men before him. But does that make him one of them? No. The raggedest tramp in the pit would smile at the idea. He couldn't comprehend it, couldn't take it in, couldn't in any remote way conceive of it. Well, to the king, the nobles, and all the nation, down to the very slaves and tramps, I was just that kind of an elephant, and nothing more. I was admired, also feared, but it was as an animal is admired and feared. The animal is not reverenced, neither was I. I was not even respected. I had no pedigree no inherited title. So in the king's and noble's eyes, I was mere dirt. The people regarded me with wonder and awe, but there was no reverence mixed with it. Through the force of inherited ideas, they were not able to conceive of anything being entitled to that except pedigree and lordship. There you see the hand of that awful power, the Roman Catholic Church." In two or three little centuries it had converted a nation of men to a nation of worms. Before the day of the church's supremacy in the world, men were men, and held their heads up, and had a man's pride and spirit and independence. And what of greatness and position a person got, he got mainly by achievement, not by birth. But then the church came to the front with an axe to grind, and she was wise and subtle and knew more than one way to skin a cat or a nation. She invented divine right of kings, and propped it all around brick by brick with the Beatitudes, wrenching them from their good purpose to make them fortify an evil one. She preached to the commoner humility, obedience to superiors, the beauty of self-sacrifice. She preached to the commoner meekness under insult, preached still to the commoner, always to the commoner, patience, meanness of spirit, non-resistance under oppression, and she introduced heritable ranks and aristocracies and taught all the Christian populations of the earth to bow down to them and worship them. Even down to my birth century, that poison was still in the blood of Christendom, and the best of English commoners was still content to see his inferiors impudently continuing to hold a number of positions, such as lordships and the throne, to which the grotesque laws of his country did not allow him to aspire. In fact, he was not merely contented with this strange condition of things, he was even able to persuade himself that he was proud of it. It seems to show that there isn't anything you can't stand if you are only born and bred to it. Of course, that taint, that reverence for rank and title, had been in our American blood, too. I know that. But when I left America, it had disappeared, at least to all intents and purposes. The remnant of it was restricted to the dudes and dudesses. When a disease has worked its way down to that level, it may fairly be said to be out of the system. But to return to my anomalous position in King Arthur's kingdom, here I was, a giant among pygmies, a man among children, a master intelligence among intellectual moles. By all rational measurement, the one and only actual great man in that whole British world. And yet there and then, just as in the remote England of my birth time, the sheep-witted earl, who could claim long descent from a king's layman, acquired at second hand from the slums of London, was a better man than I was. 
such a personage was fawned upon in Arthur's realm, and reverently looked up to by everybody, even though his dispositions were as mean as his intelligence, and his morals as base as his lineage. There were times when he could sit down in the king's presence, but I couldn't. I could have got a title easily enough, and that would have raised me a large step in everybody's eyes, even in the king's, the giver of it. But I didn't ask for it, and I declined it when it was offered. I couldn't have enjoyed such a thing with my notions, and it wouldn't have been fair anyway, because as far back as I could go, our tribe had always been short of the bar sinister. I couldn't have felt really and satisfactorily fine and proud and set up over any title except one that should come from the nation itself, the only legitimate source, and such an one I hoped to win. And in the course of years of honest and honorable endeavor, I did win it, and did wear it with a high and clean pride. This title fell casually from the lips of a blacksmith one day in a village, was caught up as a happy thought, and tossed from mouth to mouth with a laugh and an affirmative vote. In ten days it had swept the kingdom, and was become as familiar as the king's name. I was never known by any other designation afterward, whether in the nation's talk or in grave debate upon matters of state at the council board of the sovereign. This title, translated into modern speech, would be The Boss. Elected by the nation, that suited me, and it was a pretty high title. There were very few thes, and I was one of them. If you spoke of the duke, or the earl, or the bishop, how could anybody tell which one you meant? But if you spoke of the king, or the queen, or the boss, it was different. Well, I liked the king, and as king I respected him, respected the office, at least respected it as much as I was capable of respecting any unearned supremacy, but as men— I looked down upon him and his nobles privately, and he and they liked me, and respected my office. But as an animal without birth or sham title, they looked down upon me, and were not particularly private about it either. I didn't charge for my opinion about them, and they didn't charge for their opinion about me. The account was square, the books balanced, everybody was satisfied. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9. The Tournament They were always having grand tournaments there at Camelot, and very stirring and picturesque and ridiculous human bullfights they were, too, but just a little wearisome to the practical mind. However, I was generally on hand for two reasons. A man must not hold himself aloof from the things which his friends and his community have at heart if he would be liked, especially as a statesman. And both as businessman and statesman, I wanted to study the tournament and see if I couldn't invent an improvement on it. That reminds me to remark, in passing, that the very first official thing I did in my administration, and it was on the very first day of it, too, was to start a patent office, for I knew that a country without a patent office and good patent laws was just a crab— and couldn't travel anyway but sideways or backways. Things ran along a tournament nearly every week, and now and then the boys used to want me to take a hand, I mean Sir Lancelot and the rest, but I said I would by and by, no hurry yet, and too much government machinery to oil up and set to rights and start a-going. We had one tournament which was continued from day to day during more than a week— and as many as five hundred knights took part in it from first to last. They were weeks gathering. They came on horseback from everywhere, from the very ends of the country, and even from beyond the sea, and many brought ladies, and all brought squires and troops of servants. It was a most gaudy and gorgeous crowd, as to costumery, and very characteristic of the country and the time, in the way of high animal spirits, innocent indecencies of language, and happy-hearted indifference to morals. It was fight or look on, all day and every day, and sing, gamble, dance, carouse, half the night, every night. They had a most noble good time. You never saw such people. Those banks of beautiful ladies shining in their barbaric splendors, 
would see a knight sprawl from his horse in the lists, with a lance shaft the thickness of your ankle clean through him and the blood spouting, and instead of fainting they would clap their hands and crowd each other for a better view. Only sometimes one would dive into her handkerchief and look ostentatiously broken-hearted, and then you could lay two to one that there was a scandal there somewhere, and she was afraid the public hadn't found it out. The noise at night would have been annoying to me ordinarily, but I didn't mind it in the present circumstances, because it kept me from hearing the quacks detaching legs and arms from the day's cripples. They ruined an uncommon good old cross-cut saw for me, and broke the sawbuck too, but I let it pass. And as for my axe, well, I made up my mind that the next time I lent an axe to a surgeon I would pick my century. I not only watched this tournament from day to day, but detailed an intelligent priest from my Department of Public Morals and Agriculture, and ordered him to report it, for it was my purpose, by and by, when I should have gotten the people along far enough, to start a newspaper. The first thing you want in a new country is a patent office, then work up your school system, and after that, out with your paper." A newspaper has its faults, and plenty of them, but no matter. It's hark from the tomb for a dead nation, and don't you forget it. You can't resurrect a dead nation without it. There isn't any way. So I wanted to sample things, and be finding out what sort of reporter material I might be able to rake together out of the sixth century when I should come to need it. Well, the priest did very well, considering. He got in all the details, and that is a good thing in a local item— you see, he had kept books for the undertaker department of his church when he was younger, and there, you know, the money's in the details. The more details, the more swag. Bearers, mutes, candles, prayers, everything counts. And if the bereaved don't buy prayers enough, you mark up your candles with a forked pencil, and your bill shows up all right. And he had a good knack at getting in the complimentary thing here and there about a knight that was likely to advertise—no, I mean a knight that had influence. And he also had a neat gift of exaggeration, for in his time he had kept door for a pious hermit who lived in a sty and worked miracles. Of course, this novice's report lacked a whoop and crash and lurid description, and therefore wanted the true ring— but its antique wording was quaint and sweet and simple, and full of the fragrances and flavors of the time, and these little merits made up in a measure for its more important lacks. Here is an extract from it. Then Sir Brian de la Isles and Grummore Grummerson, knights of the castle, encountered with Sir Aglovale and Sir Tor, and Sir Tor smote down Sir Grummore Grummerson to the earth. Then came Sir Carados of the Dolorous Tower, and Sir Turquine, knights of the castle, and there encountered with them Sir Percival de Gallus, and Sir Lamorac de Gallus, that were two brethren, and there encountered Sir Percival with Sir Carados, and either brake their spears unto their hands, and then Sir Turquine with Sir Lamorac, and either of them smote down other horse and all to the earth." and either parties rescued other and horsed them again, and Sir Arnold and Sir Gauter, knights of the castle, encountered with Sir Blandulus and Sir Kay, and these four knights encountered mightily and brake their spears to their hands. Then came Sir Pertolope from the castle, and there encountered with him Sir Lionel, and there Sir Pertolope, the green knight, smote down Sir Lionel, brother to Sir Lancelot, all this was marked by noble heralds, who bear him best, and their names. Then Sir Bleoberus brake his spear upon Sir Gareth, but of that stroke Sir Bleoberus fell to the earth. When Sir Galahodin saw that, he bade Sir Gareth keep him, and Sir Gareth smote him to the earth. Then Sir Galahud gat a spear to avenge his brother, and in the same wise Sir Gareth served him and Sir Dinadan and his brother La Cote Male Tail, and Sir Sagramore Le Desiris, and Sir Dodinus Le Savage, and all these he bare down with one spear. When King Aswisance of Ireland saw Sir Gareth fare so, he marveled what he might be, that one time seemed green, and another time, at his again coming, he seemed blue. 
and thus at every course that he rode to and from he changed his color, so that there might neither king nor knight have ready cognizance of him. Then Sir Aguisance, the king of Ireland, encountered with Sir Gareth, and there Sir Gareth smote him from his horse, saddle and all. And then King Carados of Scotland, and Sir Gareth smote him down horse and man. And in the same wise he served King Uriens of the land of Gore. And then there came in Sir Bagdemagus, and Sir Gareth smote him down horse and man to the earth. And Bagdemagus's son Malignus brake a spear upon Sir Gareth mightily and knightly. And then Sir Galahalt, the noble prince, cried on high, Knight with the many colors, well hast thou justed. Now make thee ready, that I may just with thee. Sir Gareth heard him, and he gat a great spear, and so they encountered together. And there the prince brake his spear, but Sir Gareth smote him upon the left side of the helm, that he reeled here and there, and he had fallen down had not his men recovered him. Truly, said King Arthur, that knight with the many colors is a good knight. Wherefore the king called unto him Sir Lancelot, and prayed him to encounter with that knight. Sir, said Lancelot, I may as well find in my heart for to forbear him at this time, for he hath had travail enough this day, and when a good knight doth so well upon some day, it is no good knight's part to let him of his worship, and, namely, when he seeth a knight hath done so great labor, for peradventure, said Sir Launcelot, his quarrel is here this day, and peradventure he is best beloved with this lady of all that be here, for I see well he paineth himself, and enforceth him to do great deeds, and therefore, said Sir Launcelot, as for me, this day he shall have the honor. Though it lay in my power to put him from it, I would not." There was an unpleasant little episode that day, which, for reasons of state, I struck out of my priest's report. You will have noticed that Gary was doing some great fighting in the engagement. When I say Gary, I mean Sir Gareth. Gary was my private pet name for him. It suggests that I had a deep affection for him, and that was the case. But it was a private pet name only, and never spoken aloud to anyone, much less to him. Being a noble, he would not have endured a familiarity like that from me. Well, to proceed, I sat in the private box set apart for me as the king's minister. While Sir Dinadan was waiting for his turn to enter the lists, he came in there and sat down and began to talk, for he was always making up to me, because I was a stranger, and he liked to have a fresh market for his jokes, the most of them having reached that stage of where— where the teller has to do the laughing himself while the other person looks sick. I had always responded to his efforts as well as I could, and felt a very deep and real kindness for him, too, for the reason that if by malice of fate he knew the one particular anecdote which I had heard oftenest and had most hated and most loathed all my life, he had at least spared at me. It was one which I had heard attributed to every humorous person who had ever stood on American soil, from Columbus down to Artemis Ward. It was about a humorous lecturer who flooded an ignorant audience with the killingest jokes for an hour, and never got a laugh. And then, when he was leaving, some gray simpletons wrung him gratefully by the hand and said it had been the funniest thing they had ever heard, and it was all they could do to keep from laughing right out in meeting." That anecdote never saw the day that it was worth the telling, and yet I had sat under the telling of it hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of times, and cried and cursed all the way through. Then who can hope to know what my feelings were to hear this armor-plated ass start in on it again in the murky twilight of tradition, before the dawn of history, while even Lactantius might be referred to as the late Lactantius, and the Crusades wouldn't be born for five hundred years yet. Just as he finished, the call-boy came, so, haw-hawing like a demon, he went rattling and clanking out like a crate of loose castings, and I knew nothing more. It was some minutes before I came to, and then I opened my eyes just in time to see Sir Gareth fetch him an awful welt, and I, unconsciously out with the prayer, I hope to gracious he's killed. But by ill luck, before I had got half through with the words, Sir Gareth crashed into Sir Sagramore the Desirous, 
and sent him thundering over his horse's crupper, and Sir Sagramore caught my remark and thought I meant it for him. Well, whenever one of those people got a thing into his head, there was no getting it out again. I knew that, so I saved my breath and offered no explanations. As soon as Sir Sagramore got well, he notified me that there was a little account to settle between us, and he named a day three or four years in the future. Place of settlement, the lists where the offense had been given. I said I would be ready when he got back. You see, he was going for the Holy Grail. The boys all took a flyer at the Holy Grail now and then. It was a several years' cruise. They always put in the long absence snooping around in the most conscientious way, though none of them had any idea where the Holy Grail really was, and I don't think any of them actually expected to find it, or would have known what to do with it if he had run across it. You see, it was just the Northwest Passage of that day, as you may say. That was all. Every year expeditions went out holy grailing, and next year relief expeditions went out to hunt for them. There was worlds of reputation in it, but no money. Why, they actually wanted me to put in. Well, I should smile. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Beginnings of Civilization the round table soon heard of the challenge, and of course it was a good deal discussed, for such things interested the boys. The king thought I ought now to set forth in quest of adventures, so that I might gain renown and be the more worthy to meet Sir Sagramore when the several years should have rolled away. I excused myself for the present. I said it would take me three or four years yet to get things well fixed up and going smoothly. Then I should be ready— all the chances were that at the end of that time Sir Sagramore would still be out grailing, so no valuable time would be lost by the postponement. I should then have been in office six or seven years, and I believed my system and machinery would be so well developed that I could take a holiday without its working any harm. I was pretty well satisfied with what I had already accomplished. In various quiet nooks and corners— I had the beginnings of all sorts of industries underway, nuclei of future vast factories, the iron and steel missionaries of my future civilization. In these were gathered together the brightest young minds I could find, and I kept agents out raking the country for more all the time. I was training a crowd of ignorant folk into experts, experts in every sort of handiwork and scientific calling. These nurseries of mine went smoothly and privately along undisturbed in their obscure country retreats, for nobody was allowed to come into their precincts without a special permit, for I was afraid of the church. I had started a teacher factory and a lot of Sunday schools the first thing. As a result, I now had an admirable system of graded schools in full blast in those places— and also a complete variety of Protestant congregations all in a prosperous and growing condition. Everybody could be any kind of a Christian he wanted to. There was perfect freedom in that matter, but I confined public religious teaching to the churches and the Sunday schools, permitting nothing of it in my other educational buildings. I could have given my own sect the preference and made everybody a Presbyterian without any trouble— but that would have been to affront a law of human nature. Spiritual wants and instincts are as various in the human family as are physical appetites, complexions, and features, and a man is only at his best, morally, when he is equipped with a religious garment whose color and shape and size most nicely accommodate themselves to the spiritual complexion, angularities, and stature of the individual who wears it. And, besides, I was afraid of a united church. It makes a mighty power, the mightiest conceivable. And then, when it by and by gets into selfish hands, as it is always bound to do, it means death to human liberty and paralysis to human thought. All mines were royal property, and there were a good many of them. They had formerly been worked as savages always worked mines, holes grubbed in the earth, and the mineral brought up in sacks of hide by hand at the rate of a ton a day. But I had begun to put the mining on a scientific basis as early as I could. Yes, I had made pretty handsome progress when Sir Sagramore's challenge struck me. 
Four years rolled by, and then, well, you would never imagine it in the world. Unlimited power is the ideal thing when it is in safe hands. The despotism of heaven is the one absolutely perfect government. An earthly despotism would be the absolutely perfect earthly government if the conditions were the same, namely the despot, the perfectest individual of the human race, and his lease of life perpetual. But, as a perishable, perfect man must die and leave his despotism in the hands of an imperfect successor. An earthly despotism is not merely a bad form of government, it is the worst form that is possible. My works showed what a despot could do with the resources of a kingdom at his command. Unsuspected by this dark land, I had the civilization of the nineteenth century booming under its very nose. It was fenced away from the public view, but there it was, a gigantic and unassailable fact, and to be heard from yet, if I lived and had luck. There it was, as sure a fact, and as substantial a fact, as any serene volcano standing innocent with its smokeless summit in the blue sky, and giving no sign of the rising hell in its bowels. My schools and churches were children four years before. They were grown up now. My shops of that day were vast factories now. Where I had a dozen trained men then, I had a thousand now. Where I had one brilliant expert then, I had fifty now. I stood with my hand on the cock, so to speak, ready to turn it on and flood the midnight world with light at any moment. But I was not going to do the thing in that sudden way. It was not my policy. The people could not have stood it, and, moreover, I should have had the established Roman Catholic Church on my back in a minute. No, I had been going cautiously all the while. I had had confidential agents trickling through the country some time, whose office was to undermine knighthood by imperceptible degrees, and to gnaw a little at this and that, and the other superstition, and so prepare the way gradually for a better order of things. I was turning on my light one candle power at a time, and meant to continue to do so. I had scattered some branch schools secretly about the kingdom, and they were doing very well. I meant to work this racket more and more as time wore on, if nothing occurred to frighten me. One of my deepest secrets was my West Point, my military academy. I kept that most jealously out of sight, and I did the same with my naval academy, which I had established at a remote seaport. Both were prospering to my satisfaction. Clarence was twenty-two now, and was my head executive, my right hand. He was a darling. He was equal to anything. There wasn't anything he couldn't turn his hand to. Of late I had been training him for journalism, for the time seemed about right for a start in the newspaper line. Nothing big, but just a small weekly for experimental circulation in my civilization nurseries. He took to it like a duck. There was an editor concealed in him, sure. Already he had doubled himself in one way. He talked sixth century and wrote nineteenth. His journalistic style was climbing steadily. It was already up to the back-settlement Alabama mark, and couldn't be told from the editorial output of that region either by matter or flavor. We had another large departure on hand, too. This was a telegraph and a telephone, our first venture in this line. These wires were for private service only, as yet, and must be kept private until a riper day should come. We had a gang of men on the road, working mainly by night. They were stringing ground wires. We were afraid to put up poles, for they would attract too much inquiry. Ground wires were good enough in both instances, for my wires were protected by an insulation of my own invention, which was perfect. My men had orders to strike across country, avoiding roads— and establishing connection with any considerable towns whose lights betrayed their presence, and leaving experts in charge. Nobody could tell you how to find any place in the kingdom, for nobody ever went intentionally to any place, but only struck it by accident in his wanderings, and then generally left it without thinking to inquire what its name was. At one time and another we had sent out topographical expeditions to survey and map the kingdom, but the priests had always interfered and raised trouble. So we had given the thing up for the present. It would be poor wisdom to antagonize the church. As for the general condition of the country, it was as it had been when I arrived in it, to all intents and purposes. 
I had made changes, but they were necessarily slight, and they were not noticeable. Thus far I had not even meddled with taxation, outside of the taxes which provided the royal revenues. I had systematized those, and put the service on an effective and righteous basis. As a result, these revenues were already quadrupled, and yet the burden was so much more equably distributed than before that all the kingdom felt a sense of relief, and the praises of my administration were hearty and general. Personally, I struck an interruption now, but I did not mind it. It could not have happened at a better time. Earlier it could have annoyed me, but now everything was in good hands and swimming right along. The king had reminded me several times of late that the postponement I had asked for, four years before, had about run out now. It was a hint that I ought to be starting out to seek adventures and get up a reputation of a size to make me worthy of the honor of breaking a lance with Sir Sagramore, who was still out grailing, but was being hunted for by various relief expeditions, and might be found any year now. So you see, I was expecting this interruption. It did not take me by surprise. End of chapter 10 So the groundwork is laid for um, one of the the longer story elements that gets drawn out between the uh, the chapters in Connecticut Yankee. We have Sir Sagramore, and at some point there will be a fight. A fight, a fight. So that's it for us this week. I hope you have enjoyed these chapters, um, moving more and more pieces into place for what uh what twain is setting us up for and um and and some good jokes in there as well uh don't forget during the month of july if you donate to craftlet you will be put into the running for a gift at libby's leashes you'll be able to pick a project bag out of the grand total gorgeousness that is in uh robin's etsy store there's a link on the show notes at craftlet dot com um, lots and lots of news in the what would madame defarge knit and the tutoring world uh tutoring site is up and ready to go for you for the coming school year please submit a pattern to what would madame defarge knit for inclusion in the book or p- possible inclusion in the book we'll have another competition like the craftlet challenge of 2009 you can find more on that at craftlit.com. Have a great one. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the summer issue at www.knitcircus.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.